Good evening. I'm Chris. I'm one of the student ministers here at church. Uh, why don't we begin by praying together before we read the book of Isaiah. Father, we thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you love us. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and you speak to us. We pray that as we continue to read your word tonight, that you would be speaking to us, that your Holy Spirit will be working in us, shaping us and forming us, drawing us nearer to you, and showing us that we can trust you for all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn to Isaiah chapter 36? That's on page 653 of the Church Bibles, and we're going to read from verse 1. Isaiah chapter 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, so previously in Isaiah we've met King Ahaz. He was a bad king. He's now dead. King Hezekiah is now on the throne. He's a good king. He honors God. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, that was his cupbearer, a senior official, along with a massive army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. The Assyrians stood near the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the fuller's field. Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Aspar, the court historian, came out to him. The Rabshakeh said to them, Tell Hezekiah, the great king, the king of Assyria, says this, What are you relying on? I say that your strategy and your military preparedness are mere words. What are you relying on that you have now rebelled against me? Um, Assyria had been subjugating Judah. They had been paying tribute to Assyria. And now Hezekiah has ceased paying tribute and rebelled. Verse 6, look, you're trusting in Egypt that formed an alliance with Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff that will enter and pierce the hand of anyone who leans on it. This is how Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is to all who trust in him. Suppose you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you are to worship at this altar? Now make a deal with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to supply riders for them. He's mocking them. He's saying, even if we gave you 2,000 horses, we're still stronger than you. Verse 9, how then can you drive back a single officer among the weakest of my master's officers and trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I attacked this land to destroy it without the Lord's approval? The Lord said to me, attack this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew, the common language, within earshot of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh replied, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you only, and not to the men who are sitting on the wall, who are destined with you to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? They are shocking words, aren't they? The men destined with you to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine. In other words, we are going to surround you. We are going to cut off your supplies. 
and we are going to starve you out. Do you know that feeling of helplessness when you have nowhere to go? That feeling of helplessness when you're out of options and you don't know who to turn to or who to trust? That is how these men standing on the wall of Jerusalem must have felt that day as they heard these words. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, the greatest king of the greatest empire in the world, has been advancing against Judah, picking off the cities of Judah one by one. And his army is now advancing towards Jerusalem, and he sends this messenger, the Rabshakeh, ahead of the army to say, surrender now before it gets worse. Your defeat is inevitable. Just imagine how utterly helpless those men must have felt. For us, it would be as if a powerful country like China had declared war on us and had invaded us, and their forces had been making their way down our eastern seaboard. Cairns was gone, Townsville was gone, Brisbane was gone, Newcastle is gone, and now their forces have reached Sydney. And they're just picking off the suburbs of Sydney one by one. Hornsby is gone. Chatswood is gone. Crowsness is gone. And they're getting closer and closer. And we're hearing the stories of the utter devastation that this advancing army has left in its wake. We're hearing stories of cities running out of food, of Hospitals running out of supplies of families being separated. Just imagine the the images that you're seeing on the news coming out of Syria at the moment. Just imagine how that would feel. And the Rabshakeh says to those people standing on the wall, you've got no hope, so give up now. Just imagine how utterly hopeless that would be. I wonder if you've ever been in a place where you have felt utterly, utterly hopeless. I wonder if you're in a place tonight, this week, where you feel utterly hopeless. Perhaps sickness or cancer is attacking your body and there's nothing you can do about it. Perhaps you've faced opposition because of your faith. Perhaps that promotion or that opportunity has been withheld from you because you won't compromise on what you believe. There's no easy way out of it. Perhaps you're watching someone that you you love and care about derail their life with bad decisions, or perhaps they're suffering as a result of someone else's bad decisions, and you want so much to help them, you want so much to rescue them, but you know that there's nothing you can do. Perhaps the future is uncertain. You've done everything that you can do, but now the next step is in the hands of someone else, and all you can do is wait. Perhaps you're at a fork in the road. Maybe you've got some decisions to make. You've got two, three, four choices. But the thing is, they're all bad choices. There's no good option. There's no good alternative. There's no easy way forward. Perhaps it's tragedy. Perhaps it's nothing that dramatic. But maybe... The pressures of of long hours at work and strained relationships and mounting stresses are just waging 
a wall of attrition against you, and it's just slowly wearing you down. When you feel utterly helpless, where do you turn? If you look at verse 4, the Rabshakeh says to those men standing on the wall, what are you relying on? What are you relying on? See, that's the question that the people in Jerusalem face. That question is the central question of this passage. And that's the question that we need to ask ourselves when the ground gives way beneath us, when we're in free fall. What are you relying on? That's the question I want to put to you tonight. And I I do just want to acknowledge that perhaps some of us, many of us, aren't in a place at the moment where we're feeling this, this sense of helplessness or need that these people in Jerusalem were feeling as it's described in this passage. Perhaps tonight you're hearing these words and you're thinking, well, I'm not sure I've ever been in a place like that. But, you know, I think one thing we we do know for certain is that we're all going to reach places like this at some point. And so if you're hearing these words tonight and they're, they're kind of glossing past you, they're not resonating with you, my hope is that nonetheless you can absorb them and carry them with you so they can be of help to you when you do reach that point. What are you relying on? The Rabshakeh keeps speaking and he says, well, I'll tell you who you cannot rely on. You cannot rely on your God. Have a look at verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and he called out loudly in Hebrew, listen to the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he cannot deliver you. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord saying, the Lord will certainly deliver us. This city will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Down to verse 18. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the power of the king of Assyria? The Rabshakeh says, sure, your God has made you promises. Your God has told you that he will deliver you and he will save you. But look around you. Look around you. You're surrounded by the army of the greatest nation of earth, the greatest empire of earth. And look what's happened to all of the other nations who stood against us. He says, how are you any different? Your God's not big enough to save you. And we hear those same words today, don't we? When our backs are up against the wall, when when the siege works are being built up against us, when modern life is waging that war of attrition against us, we hear those words ringing in our ears, don't we? Where is your God? Where is your God? And we look at the the obstacles that we're facing. We look at the unanswered questions. We look at the sickness. We look at the challenges. We look at the opposition. And we think, it seems so insurmountable. Is God really bigger than that? Is God really big enough? Can I rely on God? 
Can I rely on God? That's the question that the people in Jerusalem were asking. Uh, And we see their answer as the story unfolds. And the next part of the story unfolds quite rapidly. The men from the wall go to Hezekiah and report to him all of the things that the Rabshakeh has said. Hezekiah is distressed. He tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth. He sends a messenger to the prophet Isaiah and says, pray for us. And Isaiah sends a message back saying, don't be afraid because of the words that you have heard the Rabshakeh say. Because God says, I'm going to cause the king of Assyria to hear a rumor that's going to cause him to return to his own land. And that's what happens. The king of Assyria hears word that another army is advancing out against him. And so his attention shifts away from Jerusalem, at least in the short term. But the Rabshakeh wants King Hezekiah to know that Jerusalem is not going to be out of trouble for long. And so he sends other messengers to Hezekiah again. Have a look at um, 37 verse 10. Saying, Say this to Hezekiah, king of Judah, don't let your God whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem won't be handed over to the king of Assyria. And then he just goes on to catalog all of the other nations that Assyria has destroyed. And then the storytelling slows right down. And we almost go into slow motion and we see the way that Hezekiah responds. And this is so important. Um, Read from verse 14. Hezekiah took the letter from the messengers. He read it. And then he went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear all the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated all these countries and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but made by human hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, Lord our God, save us from his power, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Can I rely on God? Hezekiah's emphatic answer is yes, yes. Why? Because God reigns. God is on the throne. God is in control, and he has not been blindsided by any of this. See, Hezekiah has a big view of God. Just look again at the words that he uses to describe God. He says, Lord of hosts. Yes, Assyria might have an army of men, but God has all the armies of heaven at his command. God of Israel. Even though God is mighty and powerful, that doesn't mean that he's he's distant or removed. No, he's a God who defines himself in relationship to his people. He's a God who's revealed himself to his people, who has come near to his people, who is present and available to his people. 
Hezekiah says, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. The king of Assyria might think he's in control. The king of Assyria might think that he has the tactical advantage. The king of Assyria might think that he's running the show, but he's not. There's one king. There's one who reigns. And the king of Assyria only does what God has already ordained that he will do, nothing more. Hezekiah says, you made the heavens and the earth. Everything that is in existence was formed and shaped by our God, and he sustains all of it, moment by moment, by his power. God is the one who reigns. God is the one who is calling the shots. He's in control, and that is why Hezekiah trusts in him and relies on him. And God responds. God responds to Hezekiah's prayer, and he answers it in the most incredible way. Flip over um, to 37 verse 36. And we see the most extraordinary response from God, recorded in the most understated way. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185 thousand in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god, his sons struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. Then his son Ezar Hadon became king in his place. In chapter 40, which we're going to be reading next week, God speaks through Isaiah, and he says that all the princes of the earth are nothing but grass. And he says God blows on them, and they wither, and they're swept away. See, God God exhales. And 185,000 Assyrian soldiers never wake up the next morning. See, our God is a big God. And there has never been a moment in history when he has not been on the throne, when he has not been in control. That's why we can rely on him. There is a question, though, that I think often, often lurks at the back of our minds, the lurking question, if God is in control, why does it so often not seem that way? If God is in control, where is God right now in the, in the midst of my messiness, the messiness of my life? Where is God? And you know... I imagine that the disciples of Jesus must have been asking very similar questions in the hours leading up to his death. 
I imagine that in the hours leading up to his death, the disciples must have been thinking to themselves, what's going on? Where is God? If he's in control, what is this? What's happening? Just imagine how utterly helpless they must have felt. Just imagine how helpless they must have felt to see this man, this man who they thought might be the Messiah, might be the king that God had sent to save Israel, to see this man arrested and to see him taken before this mock kangaroo court and to see him mocked and spat on and then crucified and then to put his body in a grave. Just imagine how helpless they must have felt. And yet now when we read the gospel accounts of those events, what we see is that even when God looked like he was at his weakest, even when things didn't make sense, even when it seemed like God might have been defeated, God was calling the shots the entire time. When Jesus was standing before Pilate as he was about to be sentenced, he wouldn't respond to Pilate's questions. And Pilate said, why aren't, you, why aren't you speaking to me? Why aren't you answering me? He said, don't you know that I have the authority to either release you or to have you crucified? And Jesus said, you have no authority except that which my father has given to you. See, Jesus trusted that his father was bigger than any power on earth. Hezekiah trusted that his God was bigger than any Assyrian king. How big is your God? How big is your God? Is God bigger than those who oppose you? Is God bigger than the unanswered questions? Yep. Is God bigger than the things that you fear? Yep. We can rely on our God because he reigns. Can you rely on God? Yes, 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 is the message from Hezekiah. But do you rely on God? See, the question that the Rabshakeh put to those men on the wall of Jerusalem still stands. What are you relying on? What are you relying on? See, if we truly trust in a big God, if we are truly relying on a God who reigns, what does that mean? How will we respond when the wheels fall off? How will we respond when we're feeling utterly helpless? I think we'll respond the way that Hezekiah did. We'll pray. Have a look again. Flip back over the page. Flip back over to um, 37 verse 14. And look at how Hezekiah responds when he, he gets this news. Verse 14, Hezekiah took the letter from the messengers. He read it. And then he increased his insurance coverage. No, Hezekiah took the letter from the messengers. He read it, and then he held a strategy meeting. No. 
He took the letter from the messengers. He read it. And then he went up to the Lord's temple. He spread it out before the Lord. And then he prayed. Kirk Patson is a lecturer at SMBC where I'm studying. In his commentary on Isaiah, he wrote this. He said, I'm always moved by the picture of Hezekiah spreading out the letter in the temple before God. It's such a deliberate expression of faith. It amounts to a surrender of Hezekiah's power and prerogatives and speaks of a real desire to wait upon God alone to act. I remember reading this account at a time when we had a growing folder of difficult medical reports regarding one of our children. He was fitting uncontrollably and the seizures pointed to serious brain problems. We felt and at times still feel hopeless. I remember spreading out the reports before God, deeply aware that God alone needed to act. See, prayer is what a helpless person does when they trust in an all-powerful God. So let me ask again, are you relying on God? When you're hit by a curveball that knocks you right off your feet. Do you remember that God is never hit by curveballs? God is never taken by surprise. And does that truth drive you to call out to him in prayer? When things are out of control and you feel like you're trying to drive on ice. Do you remember that God is never out of control? And so do you let go of the steering wheel and allow him to take over? When people are out to get you, do you remember that God has already defeated every enemy? And does that compel you to, tr- to, to pray to him and to trust in him? When the bottom falls out, do you remember that because your faith is in Christ, you have direct access to the God who reigns over all the universe. And he hears all of your concerns. And does that lead you to pray? As your first line of response, do you pray? See, I think our prayer life is a powerful litmus test of whether or not we are relying on God. Our prayer life is a powerful litmus test of whether or not we are actually living as if there is only one Lord who reigns. So if someone was a fly on the wall in your life, If someone could just watch you as you went about your day, if they saw the way you went about things, the way you reacted, the way you responded when things took you by surprise, when things went wrong, I wonder, would they get the sense that you were trusting your life to an all-powerful God? Would they get the sense that you truly believed that God alone did reign? What would they see? If they saw someone at work attacking you, Because of what you believe, what would they see? Would they see you arcing up and getting on the defensive and feeling like you needed to to, um, something God, there's a word, defend God? Or would they see you taking a moment out to pause and to pray, say, God, thank you that you're in control. 
Thank you that you're in charge. Give me wise words for this conversation. If they saw you as you found out news that you hadn't gotten that job, or as you found out news that the doctor's report was, was what you were fearing it would be, what would they see in your response? Would they see you turning to God, crying out to him and trusting yourself to him and saying, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but God, thank you that you're in control. Please help me. If prayer is not your first line of response, it may suggest a couple of things. It may suggest either one that you have a view of God that's too small. Or secondly, that you have an overinflated view of your own um, uh, autonomy and control. See, we need to right-size our perspective. We need to remember that, that God is very, very big. And that we are very, very small. And we need to hold those two truths together and allow that to drive us to prayer in every situation, in every challenge, in every hardship. To pray to the God who reigns. To pray to the God who is in control. And to then rest in him. So, are you facing opposition. Pray. Is someone you love suffering and struggling? Pray. Are there unanswered questions about the future? Pray. Are you at a fork in the roads? Pray. Our God reigns. Our God is on the throne. He's always been there. He's given us no indication that he's planning on moving from there. Our God is calling the shots. He's never been taken by surprise. And we can trust him. We can rely on him. So the question is, what are you relying on? Are you relying on God? We're going to spend some time responding to God now. We're going to have a time of open prayer. This is our opportunity to pray together as a church community, to respond to what we've heard from the word of God, to bring all of our needs, all of our cares, all of our concerns before him. For he reigns and he hears us and he responds.